Okay, so <clears throat> off we go into the fourth foundation. <laughs> Sounds like a Star Trip adventure. <clears throat> uh, so uh, I thought I would start this evening by just uh, throwing Buddhism open, like uh, if we were cutting open a pumpkin just letting it look, just looking at it, because people are uh, often very confused, which I certainly understand because I've been one of those, about what all the directions and pointings and lists have to do with uh, the central theme of freedom. And so I'm trying to make this uh, very simple. And you say, are you oversimplifying? And I say, no, if anything, I'm undersimplifying. I can't make it simple enough. And so I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. You know, most of us start our spiritual journey as if we're in some kind of, uh, of, of journey away from ourselves towards some place where we have some vague notion. Uh, we hear words like transcendence and freedom and, and we, uh, we have some notion in our mind that that's a journey that uh, is going to be long and arduous, complicated, and we start reading the suttas and uh, that vision of the difficulty of our journey is fulfilled within the suttas because it sounds like uh, the constant references to uh, endless reincarnations and rebirths of over and over again until you finally get it, kind of like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> <laughs> So, and uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, sobering journey many people take, uh, and the sense of suffering sounds like it's at the center of the issue of Buddhism, and so where's the joy, where's the participation, where's the, the human uh, interconnectedness when we're gathered around some uh, central theme of suffering? So anyway, on and on, people can misread the simplicity, the, the very simple nature of Buddhism. So we're cutting the pumpkin open tonight. Uh, just what, what I caution you doing is going back to complexity. You know, just keep it very simple. Keep it very understandable to what you're doing on the mat in your meditation. If it's not directly <coughs> applicable, to what you're doing on the mat, then quite likely you have misgaged what a Buddhism is, the view that it's encouraging us towards, or you are uh, engaged in a practice that doesn't move in that direction. So it should feel very at home to you uh, in terms of what you're doing on the mat and the philosophical view and intention going forth. So as we look at this, let's just we take this very simply. Let us just look at our immediate experience. And if I take my immediate experience in this moment, I see a lot of objects. And I have never known the world without a lot of objects in it. And if I look with some degree of subtlety, I see there is a consciousness or an awareness that holds the objects. That's called the seeing of the objects. When we're listening to sound, that's called the hearing of the sound. If we're 
whatever sense door, it's the, what is received, receiving the sense data. Okay, sights are being received by a conscious awareness. I mean, how else can you see? Now the problem, there, there, there it is, right there. So that's, that's the all of spirituality. You say, what, what does that mean? Well, here's, the, here's the, the way we have distorted that. We claim reference to that consciousness. We say, I see. Uh, and we don't realize that the sense of I is another object within consciousness. We think it's the owner of the consciousness that is the person seeing. And so we get very confused about how to lose this person called I so that I can come to the fulfillment of whatever spiritual journey I'm on. <clears throat> when the seeing is really universally owned. It's not our seeing. It's not our consciousness. And therefore, we don't have to lose ourselves to find this consciousness. We simply have to be quiet enough where we can be seen as part of the objects within consciousness. And that's pretty quiet. And Alternatively, we begin to see that when what if we're too noisy, we can't see anything but the objects in front of us. We miss the scene entirely. We invest in the world of objects. And that's where suffering comes in. Because the more you invest in the world of objects, the fact is that objects are not guaranteed to stay likable or lasting. And therefore, if you if your sense of worth and value and meaning and purpose in life comes from the objects that you have sought and those objects die, transform, change, then you're going to suffer in relationship to that investment. So suffering is an attempt for us to have a sobering understanding of the investment that we have in the objects of the world. And why is that important? Because when you do wake up to the difficulty, the resistance, the struggle we have with the objects, you're no longer willing to impart or invest that energy in them. And very quietly, we divest the energy in the objective world. The objective world doesn't mean that we somehow transcend it and start floating three feet above it. It just means that it doesn't, it's not, our sense of worth isn't dependent upon it any longer. Our sense of meaning and purpose is independent. And as we divest that energy from the many objects we see, lo and behold, we also see the seer, who we have claimed to be another object, the holder of the consciousness, becomes quieter and quieter. In fact, the object, the sense of me, is, is noisy and it's he or she is pronounced in exactly the same ratio as I am investing in the objects of the world. So if I divest in the objects, the sense of I becomes quieter and less formed. What usually happens is because we're so invested in the object of I that we get scared when we become less formed and therefore we impart more value to the object so that we can become an object ourselves. Are you following all this? This is actually very simple. So, when you're sober, when you, we are mature, when we really want to know the answers to life, when we really are seeking the truth, not just some 
a soothing quality that meditation will give us, not just a pleasant kind of floating sensation that I had a wonderful sitting today because I, I don't know what went on, but I, nothing was disturbed, I was just floating along. That's not the meditation. The meditation is only as reliable as the sincerity of heart that is sitting. And so that, if that, when that sincerity of heart really wants to know what's going on, then the meditation is enhanced considerably from that intention. And then we start looking at how we have given ourselves away to the objects of the world. And in so doing, we also understand the owner of the, the object that owns the consciousness as well. And we're willing, now we get very interested in what comes in when we divest from where we have been uh, uh, up until this point, investing all of our energy, and that's in the objects. But when we divest that, where does that energy go? It goes into the formless. It goes into awareness. Awareness cannot be sensed as long as the, all the energy is going towards the creation of the objects that I see in life. When I say creation, I mean just that. We are creating the objects we see. You think Bell is inherent in that object? That's what we're investing energetically in that object to make it a bell through memory, through our past knowledge, etc. And that's where the tension comes in, is to keep that a bell, to keep this a pocketbook, to keep that a floor mat. And pretty soon, you begin to sense that in keeping objects objects, you rob the world of the mystery, of the formless. The sense of wonder, it's not a small thing we rob ourselves of. We rob ourselves of a sense of wonder. And perhaps most significantly, we rob ourselves of a sense of the sacred. And as we relax our hold on objects, and as we become less composed and tight around ourselves, we have access to the sacred. And there's more space, which makes sense, does it not? Because when we want something to be just what we know it to be, there's no space around it. But as we relax our need for that thing to be what we have said it to be in our minds, then space, and that space is again awareness. And so the formless finds us when we release our grasping need on the forms of life. The sacred is here. So now we're nowhere, we haven't journeyed anywhere outside of our experience in this moment. We haven't sought a teacher. We haven't gone up to the Himalayan mountains and sought some kind of... We have done nothing. We have simply looked at the present experience and we have seen how simple all of Buddhism fits into this moment, fits into this expression, this perception that we are currently having. All of it. Everything else is a delay. Now we may want to delay, and that's fine if you so wish, but I don't want to. I'm 65, I don't want to delay. When you get serious, you get serious about the delay and about just the uh, enjoyment we have in knowing more and more about Buddhism, which is an intellectual philosophy in its worst 
in its worst manifestation. And it's endless. Not simple, very complex. I mean, volumes have been written just in editing and commentating on what is already written, which are volumes. Yet in this five minutes that we have been speaking together here, that's it. Now our, our sitting should accompany that. Should be in complete alignment with that. If we're sitting and we are attempting to just create a better object called I or a better experience, which is an, uh, a, an agenda, an extra agenda for ourselves, then we will find that. You'll have a better experience of your own mind. You'll have a smoother and quieter or whatever the consciousness you so wish. You'll find your way to that. But the basic problem will still be there. Struggle in the end of struggle. Object consciousness or consciousness itself. And as we... Uh, as we lessen the identification with the forms of the world, our form identity, if I could uh, steal a phrase I think that uh, Eckhart Tolle says, which I like a lot, the form identity, the identity that's created around form and thinks of him or herself as a form, is released. And it's that bundle of tension that we have called I that has kept us from everything. And there is no way to carry that bundle of tension into a spiritual orientation to life. Those are mutually antagonistic. You can't hold on to everything you so wish and want and expect your life to be spiritual. It's exactly proportionate to your willingness to release that in which the spiritual arises. Now, we're, it, what's very interesting to me is that science is just coming out blaring its truth of everything I have just said. And I think that gives us confidence because up until a few years ago, we were, we, that objective view of science meant a lot to us. It seems to mean less as a culture now. But I still gain a lot of, of uh, conviction from it, and so should you, in the sense that what scientists in their most rational, objective view, I'm not talking about the scientists, I'm talking about the science now, can see in terms of what they know the universe to be is beginning to mirror formless reality. Not reality of form. Reality of form is mentally applied. Formless reality is what catches when we release that mental application. I was just uh, listening on uh, KUOW, the NPR station, 
uh, to a Michael Gazaniga, Gazaniga, Michael Gazaniga. He wrote a book called Who's in Charge? He's a uh, psychologist who has done a lot of mapping of the brain, and he simply <coughs> says that the idea that we are anywhere other than a electrical impulse within the brain as a nervous system, within the nervous system, is completely false. And he says every time he gives a talk like that, people panic because they're afraid that if that's all they are, it will take everything from him, them. And he says, I've lived with that for 10 years. It's taken nothing from me. I'm a half far happier man. And I just... I think that, you know, that there are indications now that we have been in a kind of pretending mode for some period of time as a species and that we have to step out of that. And also physics. I mean, physics, I love, if you've been watching that um, Fabric of the Universe by Brian Greene, He's been, he's saying uh, there's a, a serious postulation that everything that we observe in life is nothing more than a hologram, hologram that has come from the knowledge that has formed around a black hole. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but what I hear, what I hear, as I try to figure out what that means, I don't try to figure out what it means because the science is way beyond me. What I hear is emptiness. We have taken something to be more than what it is. If all this is a hologram, let me know it. I need to know that. I don't want to live as if it were something else in, a, in some kind of wonderland. I want to know what it is. And if it is a wonderland, let me see that. And so, as we look at the four foundations, we really see the Buddha attempting to bring us to that understanding. And he does it almost like a spider would to a fly. In the sense that he encourages us into the body. Because we've been, we're kind of daydreaming around. We don't even know we have a body. We're just kind of floating through life, thinking our way through life, and he's saying, okay, wait a minute, you know, sound the trumpets here, come on back into the body. And that's the trap. The trap is set now. When he's got us grounded in body, and our attention is coming back into the body, now we're, we've set off on a path that only has one direction, and that is towards emptiness. We think we're safe in the body. We think, oh, I'm at home finally. I don't like it very much. I don't like my body. I've had a difficulty with my body my whole life. But I can learn to orient myself to it and ground myself or whatever. Some of us practice yoga <coughs> to do just that. But that's not the end. We get in there and then he has us starting to question what, it, what we have found when we base ourselves in the body, is it as solid as the mirror image might indicate? Does it look three-dimensional and earth-like inside of ourselves as we experience in it firsthand from awareness? No, it looks spacious. It looks 
vacuous. It looks empty inside. It's like a, you, it's impossible to find anything that's solid that aware, awareness can't penetrate. It can go anywhere. Awareness can go anywhere. Suddenly, wow, what's solid about this? There's, we begin to awaken to a misrepresentation of objects because our body is an object. It's the most important object to most of us. And by implication, if I'm not solid, neither is anything else out there. And that's a, that's a huge leap to take. And now the spider's got the fly. Because not only is our curiosity stimulated, but we see that there is advantage to moving it in this direction. Because as we center ourselves in the body and really look at what the body is, and we don't bring, quote, past knowledge and remembrance into the body, unquote, we begin to see that it floats free of moorings, that there's no tether to it anymore, that it doesn't have a curvature. This is experiential. This isn't visual. Visual, the reason you don't see it visually is because it's the visual image and the recognition are at the same one and the same thing. The neural pathway to recognition is the same neural pathway to, as memory. And so what you're seeing is the memory of what you've known that thing to be. That's why it looks the way it does. But if you just scratch beneath the surface and experience it with eyes shut so that the image, the visual image, doesn't keep betraying the fact the actual experience of what the body is takes you into a different realm completely. And no, there can be a moment of panic because, oh my God, where's my body? Some people feel as if they've lost their body or their body disappears. Some people are thinking, I mean, all you have to do is look down and there it is. It's not... But there's, there is all along the way here our perception which is our adjoinment of, of objects, you see. What, we're not trying to send you off into some kind of never-never land. We're simply trying to have us look and see what objects. We've imparted this belief that objects are this way. We're never going to release objects to be what they are as long as we still believe them to be so precious. And as you begin to investigate what an object is, i.e. the body, you begin to see, well, I can't even configure it in a way that I can call it the body, not experientially. And so then the Buddha, he, sets us, he says, okay, now I've got him. Close the door. This is if you're sincere. You can drive the thing any way you want to if you're not. There's only one true path for this. The sincerity of heart is the only true path. And so once we have been, okay, so, okay, now I've got it. Then he brings in the second foundation, which sets us up to realize how we have configured life to be more than what we now know it to be. Because we've seen the body as something else than what the mirror says it is, we can begin to see how that happens from the second foundation. When we impart a a, a script to the feelings we have about something, 
what we impart is a is a kind of leaning or story that we want to invest in the object. Now the object holds the investment of my story about it, and it becomes that most dear object my mother gave me when I was 12, or it becomes whatever other precious things we have, including ourselves. And you see that just the simple ephemeral feeling that's nothing. What's a feeling? It's like, I don't know, it's like, a, it's like a touch of a breeze. It's nothing. Suddenly the whole of the mind gathers steam and in, encircles that feeling, creating a whole story around it and an investment and an endearment and on and on. Or, contrary, aversion to it. And I'm never going near that or whatever. Or nothing, or it doesn't care about it. And that way it doesn't even notice it. It's not even on the radar screen. Conveniently eliminating objects that have no valence or power. Well, you say to yourself, my God, I'm just, I'm just swaying like a swing set, going back and forth, leaning towards, leaning away, leaning towards, leaning away. And everything I see all day long has this kind of swing set mentality in relationship to to the objects. And from all of that swinging back and forth, I can put together the world as I know it to be. Because the mind has enormous capacity to coordinate all those feelings into a single sense of assumption, single set of assumptions in which it knows everything and can move through everything. Look around. And so now he also gives us the next step. Oh, I'm not even going to get to the beginning of this talk. <laughs> he also gives us the next step, which is just see the mind as the mind. If we think that's easy, try it. Here's how you try it. Stand in front of the mirror and say nothing about the image you're seeing. See if you can do it. Or, better, stand in front of the mirror, let whatever image is there, and know what you're saying about that image. All of the feeling tones, all the judgments, all of the criticisms, all the identification, all of that is thought being added to an image. That is exactly how we are formed. We can see it in the image of ourselves in a mirror. You see yourself coming, what, that doesn't, mere image doesn't contain any of that. It's a, it's a completely neutral image. But we won't allow it to be neutral because it means too much to us. <clears throat> and so when we get to the point where we see that only awareness can see. Thought can't, doesn't see. Thought just comments on what it has known. Thoughts don't see. Thoughts can, are in, do not have the capacity to see. Thoughts have the capacity to comment about what it thinks it, awareness sees. 
the only thing that sees is awareness. The only thing that hears is awareness. The only thing that smells, tastes, touch is awareness. That's the only thing. The o- consciousness is the only thing. So when we realize that everything else is adding something to what is a, there in consciousness, the very simple appearance of something, like the image on the, on the mirror, just a very simple image, color and form, and we add everything else to it. That's the thought, the comment about the appearance. We realize how invested we are in keeping this life going as we know it to be, with the tensions of that. And that's where the third foundation, understanding, seeing thought as thought and seeing the mind as the mind. And it's just this, you add nothing more than just this, just this, just the image. Everything else is mind, the image, everything else is mind. Even identifying that image as me is mind. And it's right here. This is it. This is just the science of perception. All we're doing is going into perception. That's all we've done. We haven't gone anywhere. We're just willing to take our perception apart and look at it. So our usual identity is held within form and within thought, and that's how we claim reference to ourselves, and that's how we hold objects as being individuated and separate from one another. The mind does that. It holds us separate from the objects and identifies the objects separate from us. That's a trick of the mind. That's a trick. But when we see that the sense of self and the knowledge of what that image is are both mental experiences, the sense of self is also an object that the mind has extracted a whole narrative about, and the object that it sees is an object that the mind has extracted a whole narrative about, and those two play ping pong with each other and divide the world as subject and object seen. And all of that is happening in the mind. So what a meditation looks like in coordination with that fact is quiet. Meaning we see it. Awareness, the discerning power of awareness sees that it is giving its life away to the images and the investment it has within the images. So when it sees that, you don't force yourself to be quiet. Forcing yourself to be quiet is the image doing something to itself, which just enhances the image. I need to be quiet. I should quiet down now. I should be a better meditator. All of that is really useless practice. It's the direct seeing, the direct discernment 
of that fact and we quiet down because it's, the sermon is very simple. It's a very simple knowing. Very simple knowing. Oh, and then you just, it just falls away. You see it, it falls away. It isn't, there isn't struggle about it. That's true surrender. Seeing, unless there's a back issue, you see, the back issue is, I don't want to see that, or what did I see, or my God, what are the implications of all this? Now the story gets re-engaged, and as the story gets re-engaged, of course, we get re-engaged with the story, and the whole struggle begins about what I just saw. And that's a further elaboration of the image of self. Now it's the image of self adding the story of its own image to itself. Quiet is quiet. Quiet, the quieter we become, the more discerning, the more capacity there is to discern. Discernment, remember, is what catches us when we release the tensions and struggles and noise we've invested in objects. So awareness is there to catch us. It's not like it's, you know, it's not like on the high wire without a net. It's a higher wire with a net. You fall off of objects, you're, you're still, you're safer than you ever were. And as we start understanding that the direction for this practice is less wording, which then means less form, because form identity is created with the words that we impart to it, and the less words we impart to it, the form starts dissolving. It's just like a snowman in May. And as that begins to melt, what is left when the words no longer are extracted from or directed towards objects is quiet. That's what's left. Quiet is analogous to awareness. We haven't gone anywhere, remember. This isn't in the Majjhimanakaya 34 second, you, know, it's, you don't gonna find it like that. This is, if you tear the pumpkin apart, you've gotta know enough not to invest in the philosophical, endless philosophical diatribe in the suttas. Simply, okay, just, just very simple. Completely safe. And now, which is what this talk was going to be about, you start getting awareness starts getting very interested in that which pulls it out of the formless into form. Because here I am sitting here and suddenly I'm restless and I'm back into being a restless person because 
all of these hindrances that we will be talking about and are talking about have a whole history just like any object has a history. And they have a character associated with their manifestation. So it's not just restlessness. It's like, oh my God, I'm an ADA or AD, ADD. My ADD is back. I need a Ritalin tablet. It's not just that, you see. It's got a whole, it's got a whole character involved in it. And so these hindrances are so based in our sense of who we are. Our identity is so strongly within that discernment has got to see this stuff. It has just got to lay this stuff bare. It has to know this stuff inside and out so that we aren't fooled if it comes to us from the left, the right, or straight on. It's not like, oh, the hindrances again. What do I do about the hindrance? Let me do a counter measure so that I won't be sleepy anymore. No, you take it on. You take it on because it's the most serious thing that you'll ever do. Because if without it, we will be lost in the sea of form forever. And discernment knows that. It sees it. It doesn't see it troublingly. It just wants to see it. It wants to participate. It wants, you see, but we first have to have interest in what we see. Because you're not going to go anywhere where you're not interested. In fact, if you try to go somewhere where you're not interested, you can be sure that the sense of self is shooting itself towards that object. I should do this. I don't really want to do it. I should do it. But when you're naturally curious about what it is that brings you back into form, you want to go there. Awareness wants to go there. It's curious. Curiosity is the surest sign of selflessness. And you're willing to expose all the characters that have been built up around these hindrance displays. All of them. Every single one of them. Because to live in a torturous dimension of objects and struggle is not acceptable to the heart any longer. We've seen too much. Too much now. We've seen it. Just, this species is going to die from its own misperception unless we do something here. I really believe that. And if you think I'm a doomsayer, then maybe I am. But maybe you're just denying. And it really, I don't know, it's just like the time is so ripe now for us to show up with some maturity and not delay this any longer. And there's a discipline to that that translates in how we sit and our willingness to see what is there while we sit. And as soon as the old anti-authority, oh, I'm not going to do what he says. I'm, not, I'm, I'm still going to have two cushions and I'm going to fold my... <laughs> Fine. You get yourself back. You get yourself back. If that's what you want, you got it. So there's a discipline here, a, a, a sense that this is helpful, that we're moving in a direction that is going to be helpful, not only to ourselves, but to us. 
and the willingness to partake in that and to really throw our energy in that. I mean, my God, what are we going to throw our energy into if we don't do that? What are we going, what's our life going to be about if it's not about this? We have two, two things it can be about. It can be about objects or it can be about the sacred. That's the only way you can go in this. And if it's about objects, it'll be about greed and possessions. possessions. That's the way it'll go. And if it's about the formless, it'll be about the sacred and interconnectedness. So you say, uh, hell with that. Okay, you're left with greed. You see, it doesn't give us any choice, not really. We don't really have a choice here. Thank God we don't have a choice. And it begins with thanksgiving. It begins with thanksgiving. It begins with the humility of appreciation. It begins with the tenderness and sensitivity of heart. That's what it begins with. To look around and say, oh, I am so fortunate. I do not want to waste my time. I have to give back with the same appreciation that I have received. You see, it's very tender. I say it, I say it with a lot of passion and urgency, but on the other side of that is extraordinary tenderness and dignity. Because we're entering life now. We're entering life in its essence. We're entering life in its essence. We're entering life itself. Not learning how to live. We're entering life. It's like the eye of life. And that doesn't give us anywhere to go. Arguments have ceased. Living from life. And I get so, discernment sees so clearly how life is, the sense of I is, extricates itself from life. It sees the impatience, it sees the wanting, the futuring, the desiring, the object formation. It sees it, it sees it, and it sees it again. And at some point, it just surrenders the need to have to invest in it any longer. Remember, we have gone nowhere. This has been done 
from our own discernment. Everyone has the ability to discern. Why do I say that? And I don't, I don't say that about this guy because he doesn't have the ability to discern. He's a statue. But because we're alive, we're alive, we do. And therefore, everyone has an equal chance of success, even if you have ADD. Your character means nothing to reality. Your character means nothing to reality. If you have been a criminal, means nothing to reality. It's just so much easier to see the sense of self when the sense of self is caring than when it's hardened and violent. That's what makes the difference, is the seeing. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Can we sit for a minute or two? Let us place the gratitude and appreciation of thanksgiving in our heart. And let us warm ourselves to the sense of inclusiveness. And let us submit to the yearning of the heart's way. And it doesn't matter where you are. It's very simple wherever we are. At home, on retreat, I-5, Okay, one more talk left, and then a question and answer session after that talk. One more talk, and then a question and I could give this talk, because I didn't get to it. <laughs> one more talk, and then a question and answer after this talk, and then we're, the year will be finished, and we're going to change to the fundamentals of practice, which isn't that much different, actually. But we'll do, we're going to change it. Anyway. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.